On the 16th of January 1920, the French international lawyer and statesman Léon Bourgeois proclaimed the birth of a new world. He did so when opening the first official meeting of the Council of the League of Nations. And he did so because the League of Nations, in his view, marked a new world, a brighter future, a better order born out of World War I. A quarter of a century later, Léon Bourgeois' new world and the League were wound up rather unceremoniously. Another world war led to the creation of another world organization, the United Nations. The League's representatives sat on the sidelines when a new generation of diplomats, of generals and activists met in San Francisco to decide on the UN's bright new future. The League by then had become the past, discredited, best to be forgotten. So what happened in between? What became of the new world born in 1920 and what remains of the League of Nations? These questions I intend to address in the course of this lecture. My name is Christian Tams and I'm a professor of international law at the University of Glasgow. The League of Nations is a huge topic, so I will have to be impressionistic. In essence, I will offer three perspectives on the League, which are in the nature of pen pictures. I will speak about the League's failure as a collective security organization, and that is a theme that dominated the UN's debates in 1945 and that remains familiar. I will also speak, and this may be perhaps a little less familiar, about some of the League's successes. And I will outline what to me seems the League's most fundamental legacy, the fact that for better or worse, it left us with a template for organizing international governance, a template that we are still working with today. Three pen pictures then, failures, successes, and a template. Before all that though, a few words about the League as an institution and about its constituent document, the Covenant. As an institution, the League was something really innovative. For centuries, men and women had dreamed of institutions ensuring world peace. Parliaments of men and federations of the world where the war drum throbbed no longer and the battle flags were furled, as Tennyson put it. The 19th century had seen informal arrangements of great powers, such as the Concert of Europe, and formalized forms of interstate cooperation in administrative and technical unions. But it took a world war to combine the two strands of thinking and to move towards permanent institutions tasked to maintain international peace. That move in retrospect was a surprisingly swift one. The last of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points had called for the establishment of a, quote, general association of nations set up to guarantee the political independence and territorial integrity of great and small states. At the Paris Peace Conference, debates about that general association took precedence over other matters. And within no more than a few weeks, delegates had agreed to set up the League of Nations. In 1926, Austin Chamberlain, the British Foreign Secretary, the brother of Neville, who would become Prime Minister in the late 1930s, gave a talk to students of my own university, the University of Glasgow, which had elected him rector. Austin Chamberlain chose to speak about the League of Nations, then seven years old. He mostly avoided the grand rhetoric of Léon Bourgeois, no new worlds in his speech, but he too recognized the significance of the project that had been begun in 1919. Once again, 
he said, humanity has revolted from the spectacle of its own deeds. The lamp in the temple of peace once more dimly burnt. And of course, the foundational document of the New League, called the Covenant, reflected the ambition of the initiative started in 1919. Now, the Covenant, first and foremost, was an organizational statute. It created organs through which the League of Nations would act, a plenary forum, the Assembly, where all members had a place, and a smaller representative body, the Council, for influential powers, some permanent, some elected for three-year periods. Council and Assembly would be aided in their work by a secretariat of League officials, not necessarily numerous or powerful, but the beginning of an international civil service. The Covenant also formulated the League's aims. It was to promote international cooperation and to achieve international peace and security, as the preamble put it. But this, cooperation first, peace and security second, was in the wrong order. The League's central object was to preserve peace. The bulk of the Covenant's provisions were addressed to this matter. So Articles 8 and 9 encouraged steps towards disarmament. And Articles 10 to 16 of the Covenant set up a rudimentary system of collective security, based on the solidarist idea that, and I quote, any war or threat of war is a matter of concern to the whole League. League members were to bring before the League organs or to submit to dispute settlement all crises that, in the words of Article 15, were likely to lead to a rupture. There was no equivalent in the Covenant to the UN Charter's comprehensive ban on military force, but the document did outlaw recourse to war during cooling-off periods and when conflicts had been addressed by international institutions. Importantly, and contrary to the wishes of many international lawyers of legalist persuasion, under the Covenant, collective security was not primarily a matter for arbitration or adjudication. A permanent Court of International Justice was established in 1922, but it remained on the margins of the League's schemes to preserve peace. At the center were the political organs, and the Council in particular. So it was the Council that would investigate the facts of a dispute, would draw up reports, and would impose military and economic sanctions against aggressor states. These measures typically required a unanimous decision, which complicated matters considerably. Yet on paper, this was an ambitious system, one that sought to organize international solidarity against rogue states and set up what Philip Jessup would later call an institutionalized peace machinery. The League was more than a security organization, though. It aimed for international cooperation in a broader sense. The Covenant mentioned a number of aims expressly, among them freedom of commerce, freedom of transit, the suppression of the drug trade and of slavery, disease control, minority protection, and the well-being of inhabitants of the so-called mandates, that is, territories formerly controlled by Germany and the Ottoman Empire, that had been placed under the tutelage of mandatory powers after World War I. And it was the breadth of these aims, from the great questions of war and peace to the seemingly technical problems of transit or disease control, that set the League apart from earlier attempts at international organization. 
Now, if all this sounded rather impressive, one cannot ignore the fact that the league in another respect was off to a rather rocky start. The covenant was agreed quickly, however, the new world organization did not attract the members it needed. Woodrow Wilson had convinced the old powers of Europe that the world should have a league, but he could not convince the US Senate that the US should be part of it. And so the United States stayed out, the gap in the bridge, as a famous punch cartoon had it in 1919. Now the United States was not alone. The League was never close to meeting its goal of universal membership. Grown out of a wartime coalition, it struggled to integrate the defeated countries. The Soviet Union stayed outside for the first 15 years. During the 1920s, membership increased gradually, but that positive trend did not last. Foreshadowing future alliances, three major states, Japan, Germany and Italy, left the League during the 1930s. And no less than 11 Latin American countries withdrew over time. Membership of the League, in short, was never universal and never stable, which made it extremely difficult for the League to achieve international peace and security. Now, this last point leads us directly to my first pen picture, the question of collective security. So how did the League fare in this respect? Did it achieve international peace as the Covenant said it should? I'm not giving away much if I say that in the end it did not. Of course not. Born from one great war, the League was paralyzed when a second, even greater one, started. By the late 1930s, it had lost all credibility. The story is familiar and it dominates most discussions of the League to this date. Mention the League and most people will think of its failure. This is the abiding theme. So when during crisis the UN fails to take effective action, commentators warn that it must not become a second League. And so attractive is the narrative that it has made it even into the pages of Asterix. In Asterix in Switzerland, our hero comes across a Geneva assembly of tribe leaders who talk and talk and talk, but fail to take action. For decades and to this date, the dominant theme of discussions of the League has been one of decline and fall. Things hadn't started all that badly though. In its early years, the League managed to defuse a number of conflicts. In 1920, it brokered a settlement in the Orland crisis between Sweden and Finland. In 1925, it robustly intervened in a Greek-Bulgarian dispute. Under significant international pressure, Greece had to withdraw troops from Bulgaria and accept responsibility. A year later, the League Council again, rather effectively, resolved the British-Turkish dispute about the oil-rich region of Mosul. Mosul would not become part of Turkey, but remained part of the British Mandate of Iraq, with consequences to this day. For a newcomer on the international stage, these and other successes were certainly not negligible and perhaps they are overlooked rather too lightly. Austin Chamberlain, in his address to Glasgow students, delivered in 1926, paints the picture of the League as a relevant player in international relations. An established facts, fact in his words, an institution that had solved problems which without its aid would have been a danger to the peace of the world. 
With the benefit of hindsight, though, we can say that the years of opportunity of the mid-1920s in which the League seemed to live up to the expectation of its founders were but a brief interlude. Faced with economic crisis at home, from the late 1920s onwards, governments felt they had less room for conciliation internationally. In Germany and elsewhere, fascist movements derided the League as an instrument of the hated Versailles Order. The Geneva Disarmament Conference of the early 1930s ended in failure. And most importantly, during the crises of the early 1930s, the League proved itself ineffective. In Lord Robert Cecil's famous account of the League, entitled A Great Experiment, the chapter covering the 1930s has a short and poignant title. It is simply called Downhill. In the League's journey downhill, two crises stand out, Manchuria and Abyssinia. Both demonstrated how much the League as an institution depended on the political will of its members, and how little it could do if that will was lacking. In 1931, the League did establish a commission of inquiry that documented Japan's aggressive policies in Manchuria. But it could not agree to follow through by imposing sanctions in Japan under Article 16 of the Covenant. When Italy invaded Abyssinia four years later, the League did impose sanctions, but these were half-hearted. And the League's failure was plain for all to see when Emperor Haile Selassie of Abyssinia addressed the Assembly in 1936 and pleaded for international help. The Assembly listened, but it let Haile Selassie be shouted down by Italian journalists sitting in the audience. Fifty nations, led by the three most powerful in the world, had declared their powerlessness to protect the weakest in their midst, noted the South African representative. After Abyssinia, the League's collective security mechanism ceased to be relevant. The League's attempts to intervene in the Spanish Civil War were in vain, and by 1939, the League has lost all authority and did not even discuss the outbreak of World War II. As an attempt to achieve international peace and security, the great experiment begun in 1919 effectively ended after two decades. So what did go wrong? The easy answer is that the League was let down by its members, in the way that these days states are often criticized for letting down the UN. That easy answer has appeal. The League depended on the commitment of states willing to work with it willing to activate the collective security mechanism, willing to impose sanctions. And at no point did the League have the support of all significant states. In the course of the 1930s, its support base shrunk dramatically. So yes, the League's failure reflects a failure of states to make collective security work. <coughs> but perhaps that answer is a bit too easy. Because the crises of the 1930s also threw into stark relief the structural deficiencies of the Covenant. Collective security under the Covenant was essentially a matter of process, of cooling off periods, of inquiries, of states accepting some form of dispute resolution. The Covenant was the product of a retrospective mentality, as Innes Claude calls it in his Sorts into Plowshares. It sought to stop states from sleepwalking into war in the way they had done in 1914. And who knows, perhaps the July crisis of 1914 could have been contained had the disputing states, Austro-Hungary, Serbia, Russia and their allies, sought some form of international dispute resolution. 
But the challenges facing the League during the 1930s were very different. States did not sleepwalk into World War II. One side aggressively planned for it. And for that challenge, the collective security system of the Covenant simply was not designed. To quote Ines Claude again, the League, established to prevent the accidental war, was unable to cope with Hitler's deliberately plotted campaign of conquest. The drafters of the Covenant had studied the immediate past, but shown insufficient imagination in an anticipating future conflict. At Dumbarton Oaks and San Francisco, the UN's founders sought to remedy these structural deficiencies, but of course they too designed a system that was inspired by their immediate past, and we're still coping with that. The story so far, my first pen picture, if you want, has probably been familiar. As I've said, most accounts of the League are animated, in some way, by the theme of failure. And given the League's ambition to achieve peace, this is entirely understandable. The League was, after all, primarily a great experiment in war prevention. But not just. It was also an attempt to foster cooperation beyond the field of security. And I would suggest that once we look beyond collective security, our view of the League is likely to change. And this is the subject of my second pen picture, which looks at some of the League's successes, and which tells a story that may be a little less familiar. So here we go. How about the League as an effective relief agency fighting epidemics in the early 1920s? It seemed to be just that. The League orchestrated an international response to contain the risk of typhus and cholera on the Polish-Soviet border. It sent international relief teams, engaged in mass vaccinations. It established a sanitary corridor between Russia and Poland, and it trained local doctors. Much of this was ad hoc, but by 1923, the threat of an epidemic had largely been contained, and thousands of lives saved. Nothing is ever perfect, and the League's response was anything but. However, it established, in the words of one historian, a precedent for public international health cooperation, a landmark in the evolution of international health governance. Or how about the League as a guardian of financial stability? Again, in the early 1920s, it seemed to be just that. Many countries in Central and Eastern Europe, which had to function economically overnight, faced a financial meltdown. Vienna, the former banking center of an empire, was reduced to the capital of a small republic, Austria. Austria noted Austin Chamberlain in his address to Glasgow students was on the brink of chaos. Four years later, Austria's financial stability had been restored through a mixture of harsh austerity measures and international loans. And the League was vital to both. In Chamberlain's words, what body other than the League could have done it? And further, no lesser security than the supervision of the League would have persuaded foreign lenders that a loan was safe. Only to the unselfish authority of the League was Austria, and were other countries, willing to confer a large part of its economic and financial sovereignty. No failure there. Lastly, how about the League as the savior of refugees? Again, by no means a far-fetched claim. Territorial resettlements, 
An ongoing conflict in the 1920s, in the early 1920s, had left hundreds of thousands of individuals displaced. The League did not address the underlying causes of that plight, but it did a lot to deal with many of its symptoms. So it negotiated exchanges of prisoners of war. It coordinated an international relief effort. It helped ensure that well over one million Greeks from Turkey would resettle in Greece. And perhaps most importantly, the League came up with some sort of solution for the plight of stateless persons. These would be given a refugee card that ensured their freedom of movement, the so-called Nansen passport, named after, Norwegian, after the Norwegian explorer who headed the League's activities. By the late 1930s, almost half a million Nansen passports had been handed out to people like Sergei Rachmaninov, to Aristotle Onassis and to countless others and the contours of an international regime of refugee law were beginning to emerge. Again, much of this was ad hoc. And in honesty, we would today probably take a much more critical view of the forced resettlements of the post-war era. But the League's role under the circumstances was significant. Again, Austin Chamberlain, when speaking to Glasgow students in 1926, impressed the point upon his audience. It is difficult to conceive, he said, how such help could have been afforded by any machinery other than the League. Health, finance, refugee law. My three short illustrations, of course, are selective. And of course, I have emphasized the positive impact of, impact of the League, where others at the time also mentioned shortcomings. But I hope I can be forgiven for looking beyond the decline and fall narratives precisely because these tend to overlook the League's successes. These successes exist, especially in areas that in the jargon of the day were considered to be technical areas of cooperation. Now importantly, the League would build on the ad hoc responses I've just mentioned. The experience of the 1920s provided the impetus for setting up institutions, a health organization that foreshadowed the future World Health Organization, WHO, a refugee organization that laid the groundwork for the UNHCR of today, and so on. By the late 1930s, the League's activities in the social, economic, and humanitarian fields were being consolidated and began to be appreciated. The work of David Mitrani and others reflected the relevance of what became to be known as functional cooperation. More than half of the League's budget went into this, the Bruce Report for League Reform, a predecessor, if you want, to the high-level panel studies of the UN era, encouraged the creation of a Council for Economic and Social Affairs. And while it was up to the UN to implement that plan, the League era really redefined our understanding of functional cooperation. Two other areas of international governance are worth mentioning, minority protection and the mandate system. Both were a consequence of the war. Territories controlled by Germany and the Ottoman Empire had been transferred to new mandate powers such as France, Belgium and Britain. And the post-war settlement had left many minority groups trapped in new foreign states, Greeks in Albania, Germans in Poland and the like. Keen to ensure their speedy recognition, new states accepted that minorities should enjoy certain basic rights, a right not to be discriminated against, a right to have their own schools, and so on. And key not to appear as old-style colonizers, the mandate powers accepted the basic principle 
of the mandate system as formulated in the covenant, namely that the development of mandated people would form a sacred trust of civilization. The obligation of states with respect to minorities and of mandate powers needed to be supervised. And supervision was where the League got involved, through the Council, through the minority section of the Secretariat, and through the Permanent Mandates Commission. Now, were the minorities and mandates regimes a success? Perhaps a qualified one. Triumphs they were certainly not. Double standards were built into the minorities regime. Poland was bound, Italy was not. And despite the grandiose language of the sacred trust, mandates were at times run like colonies. And only in rare instances did the League muster sufficient political will to enforce standards against recalcitrant states. But then again, few advances in international law and international relations are in the form of giant leaps. Typically, progress is a matter of small steps. And it seems to me that both with respect to mandates and minorities, the League's activities marked small steps of progress. Minorities treaties and mandates formulated international standards against which states could be held accountable. They forced a breach in the granite-like structure of a national sovereignty, as was observed at the time. And perhaps more importantly still, the institutions set up to administer, administer the two regimes over time developed a degree of autonomy, perhaps even a culture of international supervision. They heard petitions from inhabitants. They required states to argue their case in international fora. They reported on follow-up measures. Now, much of this was pretty weak, and often even the goodwilled administrators, in the Mandates Commission, for example, displayed a degree of paternalism that is difficult to accept for us today. But despite their flaws, the Mandates and Minorities regime of the interwar period paved the way towards the more formalized systems of international supervision established since World War II. So my main point in the second pen picture will have become clear. Yes, the League was powerless to stop World War II. And yes, as a collective security system, it failed. But no, the League should not be reduced to that failure. Rather than one great experiment, which went wrong, the League was a series of experiments, some greater, some smaller. Experiments with international government governance in fields as diverse as health, refugee protection, minority rights, mandates, even international finance. The often small steps taken in these fields could not make up for the League's failure to maintain peace and security. But it takes an uber-realist mindset simply to overlook them and to ignore the fact that the League was also, in the words of Susan Pedersen, an agent of transition and a harbinger of global governance new failure and success. Let me offer you a third pen picture of the League, perhaps the most fundamental one. It seems to me that if we step back from the failures and the successes in particular areas, then we can see in the League, for better or worse, a template for international organization. One that, one century onwards, we're still working with. What I mean by this can first of all be illustrated by comparing the League and its successor, the
the United Nations. As I said at the outset, the UN in 1945 was very keen to be seen as something new and something different. It wanted nothing to do with the discredited League. But the break was in many ways quite superficial. Often only the names and labels changed. The new world organization was still first and foremost set up to maintain international peace and security. But like the League, so the UN was more than a security organization. The UN still has two main bodies, a plenary assembly and a smaller council. It still has a secretariat, which, as in the League era, is more relevant in practice than the Charter suggests. The UN took on board reforms proposed in the League's Bruce Report. It set up an economic and social council. The mandates regime became the trusteeship system. The Permanent Court of International Justice was reborn as the International Court of Justice, formally distinct but really the second incarnation of the same world court. And most of the specialized and sectoral institutions set up during the League era were integrated into the UN and often led by the same people. None of this is to suggest that the UN simply copied the League, of course not. It learned lessons. The comprehensive ban on military force imposed on all states by Article 2.4 of the Charter replaced the Covenant's sectoral prohibitions and the Covenant's focus on process. And the system is better for it. The Security Council has been given broader powers and no longer needs to act unanimously. The UN's human rights system suffers from enforcement problems, but it's miles away from the League's rudimentary minorities regime. Great strides have been made towards codification, and where the League took a cautious step, the UN now places development center stage. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, the UN has achieved what the League only aspired to. It is a world organization with truly universal membership. So, of course, there are differences between the League and the UN. But I would argue that rather than a clear break, they should be seen as adaptations of one and the same template. In fact, that template, that basic idea of organizing international governance, which began with the League, to me seems to be taken almost as a given today. So much, in fact, that we hardly appreciate how much we have internalized it. But when we look back, it becomes apparent in how many fundamental ways the League has shaped our vision of international organizations. Let me mention a few features of that template. So think of the decision to set up one world organization with a comprehensive mandate that comprises international security and international cooperation in the broadest sense. A mandate that brings disparate tasks from war prevention to functional cooperation under one roof. Now, this doesn't strike us as, as unusual today, but it was a real innovation in 1919. Or think of a world organization that takes seriously cooperation in the social, economic and humanitarian fields and sees them as one of its main activities. Again, we take this for granted today, but it was something that really began with the League of Nations. Think of the decision to approach international security neither on the basis of balance of power schemes nor through legalist visions built around a world court, but through an institutionalized peace machinery that places political organs center stage. Again, this is taken for granted today, but it was really innovative at the time.
Think of a world organization that continues to work with states as the central units of international governance, but that gradually seeks to integrate non-state actors. And again, looked at from that perspective, the League does not feel all that outdated at all. Finally, think of a world organization that has its own staff, its own structures, its own culture, its spirit, that can offer expertise in international governance and that uses this expertise and this spirit to nudge states towards a little more cooperation. A common feature of work in international organizations today, but again, something that could first be observed in the League era, when the League officials and the Secretariat and the Mandates Commissions and elsewhere shaped the idea of an international civil service. The examples could be multiplied, but I hope that my central point has become clear. While the League was dissolved 70 years ago, in many ways we're still working on the basis of its template of international governance. A template that has been adapted, changed and improved, but that has not been replaced. The League offered, as Mark Mazower has put it, a flexible model of international government that would not only survive the Second World War, but would be greatly expanded and refined." End of quote. So however we rate the League's performance, there is a strong case for focusing, and this is again Mazower, on its enduring relevance. So what remains of the League? Leon Bourgeois, to whom I referred at the start of this lecture, clearly went over the top. His view of the League as the birth of a new world is an example of the grand rhetoric that can never be matched by reality. The new League had to prove its worth in a world that had not been radically transformed. And in many ways it struggled. Austin Chamberlain knew this. He was not given to flights of fancy. In fact, much of his address to Glasgow students in 1926 was in the form of a cautionary tale. Zeal for good causes ought not to outrun discretion, he warned. Organic growth and gradual evolution offered the best way forward. But even Chamberlain in 1926 viewed the League as an extremely useful agency for improving international relations. A new factor in international relations that often achieved results where traditional diplomacy did not, occasionally in the field of collective security, quite regularly in relation to social, economic and humanitarian challenges. And it seems to me that as we look back to the League, we should not stop at noting its eventual failure to achieve peace and security. If we reduce the League to a decline and fall narrative, we miss out on so much. On important work for global health and refugees, on early efforts to scrutinize the treatment of minorities and mandate populations. And above all, we fail to appreciate the League of Nations as the first ever concerted attempt to organize international governance comprehensively, from the dramatic to the mundane, under the roof of one world organization. Rather than one great experiment, the League was a series of experiments in international governance. Some great, some small, some successful, some less so. The League's experience can still teach us a lot. Thank you.